You are listening to the Lotus and the Rose podcast, a Namshak publishing production featuring highlights of 10 years of interfaith conversations between Tibetan Buddhist Lama Somo and mystical Christian Matthew Fox. They've both taken less traveled spiritual paths, giving them each a fresh perspective informed by their own routes and the nature and challenges of today's world. Today's episode centers around choosing a spiritual path. For more information on these two unique teachers, please check out the show notes of this episode. But here's a brief summary to get you started. Lama Somo was born into an American Jewish household, retaining those roots as her spiritual search eventually led to her immersion in Tibetan Buddhism and her 2005 ordination as a Tibetan Buddhist Lama. She has taught hundreds of students in the West and in Asia, is the author of the award-winning book Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling, and has dedicated herself to bringing the proven methods of Tibetan Buddhism to the modern world through the offerings of the Namshak Foundation. Matthew Fox was a member of the Dominican Order for 34 years and continues as an internationally recognized voice and catalyst for mystical Christianity. He is a reinventor of worship, an author, an activist, and the force behind the Fox Institute of Spirituality and the Order of the Sacred Earth. The late historian and theologian Thomas Berry wrote that Matthew Fox might well be the most creative, the most comprehensive, surely the most challenging religious spiritual teacher in America. I first met Matthew Fox through his book, Original Blessing. I was struck both by his brilliance and by the truth of what he was saying in the book. Then I got to appreciate him on another level as a personal friend more and more as we kept talking. Just the joy of conversation and interaction and the, the adventure of inquiry that both of us are so passionate about. I appreciate working with Lama Somo for a lot of reasons. One is that she's down to earth, she's a mother. She's taken some big leaps, courageous leaps, in terms of leaving her own culture to learn another very different language and culture. And of course, to immerse herself deeply into the practice and the philosophy of Buddhism. And I think she's come back with a fine capacity for articulating uh, to Westerners what uh, the wisdom of this uh, profound tradition is all about. What's a way in which you think you could be uh, an even better Buddhist? It's okay to go, no, I'm, I'm cool, but... Oh, right, I'm perfect already. <laughs> hmm. Well, uh, I still have resistance to sitting down and practicing in the morning. So there's my little kid self who's like, oh, do I have to? Let me just do this for that. Oh, no, there's no time. And then, you know, uh, miraculously, I get myself to the cushion and I am able to practice. And, you know, not too far into it, I'm like, this is wonderful. What was the resistance? How come I don't know this is how I'm going to feel? And then by the end of it, it's just, ah. Uh, even if somewhere in between something painful has bubbled up, it's, you know, it's just this happens on the cushion. It's something that I've kind of maybe been pushing in the background comes up into my consciousness and you know, it's not comfortable. I've been trying to avoid it. So, but then I'm sitting there with these practices right at my fingertips and <laughs> almost without fail, the practice I'm doing is the perfect medicine for what ails me. I'm like, well, here we go. And I just plow the practice into that. And it, it can sometimes be really intense, especially if I'm feeling intense about this painful situation. By the time I come through and out the other side, it isn't just like, oh, now I've found a great, pleasant way to shove it under the rug. It's not like that at all. It's like 
I put it into the process, it came to some realization. And by the time I'm the other side of it, I'm really in a different position in relation to that painful thing. And if it's involving a person, which it quite often is, not 100% of the time, sometimes it's situational, but a lot of times it's with a person, I feel differently toward that person. In those kinds of moments, do you find it harder to extend compassion toward yourself than you do to others? Uh, yes, well, I am a card-carrying Westerner, and we Westerners seem to be pretty terrible at compassion for ourselves or even liking ourselves. And I, too, find it challenging sometimes to give myself compassion. Luckily, I have practices to help with that. Once we do have all the reasons and so on, then we can really get on board. And it's pretty clean understanding. I find with Taiwanese, sometimes they assume too much and they haven't really stopped and examined, well, how does this karma reincarnation thing really work? Are you sure that's the way it is? Why do you have faith in the Lama? You know, because we don't want the blind faith. And so sometimes I'll challenge them with those kinds of questions. I was really looking for, and still need, sort of a graduated path. You know, in math you have addition, then you learn subtraction, then multiplication, division, and so on. Needing to train my mind to be able to slowly but surely clear away more and more of my habitual way of seeing myself, my own mind, as well as reality out there. I needed to have a progression that I could follow. And at a certain point, I was trying different ones on for size and what felt right to me. And I was kind of doing my own version of listening, chewing on it, and then trying the practices on for size that I finally came down to, okay, this one feels right to me. And I wasn't, you know, making any commitments. I hadn't joined any clubs or carried any cards. But I was like, you know, this feels right. I'm going to go a few more steps down. And so then I would go another few levels. That was incredible. And as I got further and further in that progression, the practices were stronger, more direct, and more powerful that allowed me at will to have the channel changer to get beneath the usual level of reality and get much beneath that to how reality actually is, which used to only come for me just very occasionally in random epiphanies. But I wanted to be able to have the channel changer. And the methods in the practices in Tibetan Buddhism allow me to have the channel changer so that I can have those moments anytime I sit down, not even when I meditate, you know, even faster than that. So over the years, I've found them to be really effective in that way, and that's how they're intended. Once we get to the point where you know, people are accepting of the practices and they're really going to go for it, what they've discovered in studies is you have to be in a context. Human beings are herd animals. So if there's at least a culture among a group of people who are sort of trying to go in the same direction, working on these practices together, they really go for it, and they support each other just by having a similar view and mindset and goal in mind. In Taiwan, they're more aware of the need for the group setting. You know, the three jewels of Buddhism are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Sangha is the community. I think the Buddha was aware that we're herd animals and baked that into his program. So there's a way that the culture there supports using the support of a group. And so they really take off with some of these longer practices and go ahead and learn them. Can I ask you a question? No. About your Buddhism? Certainly not. Good, then I will. 
<laughs> of all things, you're going to ask me about Paradox. Buddhism? Yes. Okay. So uh, tell me, as a Westerner at all, since you were raised very much in North America, what does Buddhism bring to you? Why is Buddhism important to you? At the practical level, you might say. <clears throat> well, I was looking for methods, you know, just techniques that could help me to work with my mind in such a way that I would be a better, happier person. That was my basic goal, and I, I started with the Western skillful means, which would be psychology, mm -hmm. and found that although they were helpful on a you know, sort of a basic level of rearranging the furniture <laughs> in one's unconscious, and you get to wear a headlight while you do it, you know? <laughs> so that was nice. Then when I uh, became the you know the first American guinea pig of this llama and had a chance to study some methods that had been developed for thousands of years, mm. you know, way before Freud, <laughs> <laughs> they were. Still standing on the shoulders of some Hindu techniques, you know, because mm -hmm. you learn those first, mm -hmm. right? So as I began road testing these methods, mm -hmm. I found that they were really effective, and furthermore, that the point wasn't just to rearrange the furniture and then keep rearranging and rearranging, but finally to get out altogether, to open the door of this little tiny cell mm -hmm. I was in. Mm -hmm. And get out, you know, mm -hmm. and be in full reality. Uh -huh. I found those methods were not only able to give me a clue about that, but to show me the door. And it's interesting that when you said you were looking for Western ways, you went to psychology. You didn't go to religion, to Jewish practices, for example. Well, you know, because my temple, I didn't find a satisfying source for that wisdom and those methods. For what you were looking for. Yeah, so uh -huh. I, if I didn't have the methods from that source and I already knew it, I had to look elsewhere. Uh -huh. Yeah, I'm sure there were some of those methods there that I just didn't know about. Yeah. And the headlamp uh -huh. didn't, you know. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I didn't come upon those. Yeah. And our lineages, a lot of them have been broken because of Hitler. Mm -hmm. And because of 2,000 years passing mm -hmm. since we were conquered and spread to the four directions. Diaspora. Uh, yeah. So the Tibetan diaspora is much more recent. Uh -huh. And there are lots and lots of live lineages mm -hmm. with lineage-holding lamas who have had the transmission not just on paper. Oh, yeah, sure. But been uh, mentored carefully and mm -hmm. had the whispered lineages, yeah. the mind-to-mind -mind lineages, mouth-to-ear that they can trace all the way yeah. back to enlightened beings. And that is special about this time in history, isn't it? That there is, as you see, a Tibetan diaspora happening. What can I say? It's, it's blessing the rest of the world, really, by getting out and reaching people like you exactly. and many others. If I were to turn the question around, you know, about myself. Yeah. I, too, was looking, mm -hmm. as a young man in my t teenage years, Mm -hmm. for a deeper Christianity, if you will, or a deep, the same thing you're looking for, I think. Yes. You know, some... Meaning. Meaning and practice mm -hmm. you know, and what matters and, you know, is this all there is? <laughs> yeah, how is this helping me, really? Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, I, what can I say, I, I, I took a chance on, on joining the Dominican Order and exploring it that way because I was impressed with some of the things I experienced, such as reading Aquinas and knowing there was some intellectual tradition here, and also visiting a Dominican house and, and hearing the chanting and seeing the community in action, and because I was from a big family anyway, and I found it very aesthetically profound, especially the chanting, the praying. There was hours every day of meditation, and that appealed to me as something quite different for a 16-year-old male growing up in the 50s in America. So I went that path. You know, then it developed another thing, but I kept digging deeper. Until finally, and I said, well, I have to go study this thing called spirituality because we're not getting enough in my mm -hmm. training, I felt. They weren't 
things were happening to me. I was having experiences that no priest could guide me on. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, my generation's going to be interested in spirituality, not religion. And you've got to have someone here who can guide people and mm -hmm. help them. And that's why I went to Europe to study spirituality. And, and I realized, especially kind of holding my journey up to yours, that they're not that different. I've been probing, and I've had to leave a lot of Christianity behind to find, you know, what nuggets are there, if you mm -hmm, will, mm -hmm. the treasures that are there. And there are treasures. I mean, well, that's where we first met, really, was over Meister Eckhart, was teaching right. a course together. Yeah. And I was struck by how you were struck. You said you, you didn't know this was in Christianity. Yeah. It took me a lot of hunting to find that, and then other sources too, including the mystical side of Aquinas that no one had ever exposed me to. And now the scholars are showing how profoundly mystical Jesus was, and how he comes from that wisdom tradition of Israel. So a real lineage of finding God not just in texts, Jesus was illiterate, but in practice and in nature, and in the turmoil, in the chaos, because he was living in a tremendously chaotic time of Jewish people trying to survive under the Roman Empire. Not that different from the Tibetans and the Chinese today, really. Mm -hmm. You know, they've been driven oh, yeah. everywhere and taken apart and being crucified. And, you know, and then there were zealots. And, yeah. yeah, let's go after the tanks with knives or something. I mean, yeah. you know, there was all kinds of craziness going on in the first century. It's interesting to talk about not just our personal choices in these journeys, but the lineages that we've hooked up with. Yeah. They have a lot more in common than we've been told. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, and I recognized in Eckhart's writing not only some understandings of the great emptiness and so on from Tibetan Buddhism, but from uh, what I was hearing my rabbi talk about when I was a kid. And he, uh -huh. you know, he was in the kitchen debating with my dad on the uh -huh. existence of God. Uh -huh. And his description was more like Eckhart. I mean, I just hadn't uh -huh. seen any since then. Really. Uh -huh. yeah. So it was uh, quite an experience for me to you know, kind of have those echoes. That was the, the most convincing thing for me as I explored first the spiritual smorgasbord and then eventually Tibetan Buddhism is the practices themselves and their effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And when I first started studying with Rinpoche, I so much appreciated as a Jew doing this mm -hmm. that he said, I'm not giving you a religion. What I'm really giving you is a series of methods mm -hmm. that you can use for training your mind mm -hmm. so that you can reach enlightenment. I was lucky enough to run into the work of Carl Jung, and so I studied Jung as a high schooler and was fascinated with how the mind worked. People would tend to come to me with their problems and everything, and so I'd listen, and I was always fascinated, first of all, with what were their true motivations and so on, but I also was moved by what I was hearing, and if there was any way that I could help them just by even listening in a certain way. I found that that just made my day. So I decided to become a psychotherapist, and I found that the work of Jung was the only work that I found that incorporated the soul in psychology, which after all is named after the soul, psyche. So I did study that and got my master's degree and then the equivalent of a second master's degree in body-centered psychotherapy because I noticed that just talk therapy alone didn't quite do it. It does need to include the body. And I was searching for spirituality that would incorporate both masculine and feminine. I actually put out prayers every day for my teacher. That was part of my meditation practice. When I first met my teacher, it was actually in Santa Fe. I had already discovered Vajrayana Buddhism by then. I had done some Hinayana and then Mahayana Zen, and then was trying on Vajrayana for size, working with an American Lama. I met Gochen Tuku Rinpoche, 
And he was actually teaching and giving an empowerment for the next practice that I was going to be doing in this series of practices. And I didn't get that this was the answer to my prayers. So the next time I met him, he was on my doorstep. Then I got it. <laughs> I was struck by the fact that he incorporated debate in the learning process. It was a very alive process. There was, you know, sound, color, archetype, all of these things that I felt were so important to me. And the central figures in the set of practices, the preliminary practices in his tradition, were the primordial Buddha in masculine and feminine form in union. So kind of the Tibetan yin and yang, you might say. What I felt was that I'd found something that goes beyond psychology and what it could do. Psychology, I found, is very important for those of us who are tripping over our mental furniture in the dark. But after we've rearranged the furniture a certain number of times, Buddhism, I found, could show me the door out. And it gave me a much larger context. So I did need to sort of belly up to the spiritual smorgasbord, which America can provide in a huge array. And I felt that the way I was going to know whether a path was right for me was to go a few steps down it with somebody who knew what they were doing, uh, showing me about it, uh, try it on for size, because it can be intellectually appealing, but I need to know, does it actually work for me? So questioning and debate and so on are very much a part of Tibetan Buddhist tradition, which I'm really comfortable with as a Jewish person because that was the case when I was growing up. You know, good, juicy questions the rabbi delighted in, my dad used to delight in, and we needed to debate points to get down to, well, what really makes sense here? If it doesn't make sense, then you don't just say, well, have faith anyway in my book. And so I was comfortable then with the Tibetan tradition, which was, yeah, you need to see for yourself. So there are three aspects of teaching. There's hearing, contemplating, putting into practice. First you hear what is sort of the scaffolding of this understanding. Then uh, the Lama starts to explain in examples and so on and so forth. Then you go off and chew on it. You know, and that's what I really need to do. Does this really make sense to me? And then I start thinking of examples to try it on for size. Well, does it work here? Does it work there? How does this work? I come back and I've asked Rinpoche a ton of questions and he loves it. He and his brother have invited me to do debate and invite is the wrong word. It was part of the curriculum. Now we will debate. And I was like, oh goody, it's like my dinner table when I grew up. Then, you know, we hammer these ideas against what each other is saying, and it helps me to hone my understanding. Oh, this is what they're talking about. Huh. Then I chew on it some more, and then I take it into practice. The very first meeting I had with Rinpoche, I didn't know he was going to be my teacher. I was trying this path on for size. It seemed appealing, uh, but I wasn't sure. I was just at the end of my first ever retreat, again trying it on for size. I had a meeting with him and we debated about eating meat or not uh, and I learned a ton about it. I don't know that we ever fully came exactly to agreement but very close. Fascinating debate. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed him. The next time I met with him, he appeared on my doorstep to teach somebody else and I got to sit in. 
it was then in this concentrated and really rather advanced level uh, teaching that I could really begin to experience how his mind is and what he had to teach. And it was uh, really jaw-dropping in its uh, profundity. Now, in terms of, of method, then it wasn't just Eckhart. Eckhart led me to Hildegard. And Hildegard, in many ways, had been silenced for about 700 years. The few authors who wrote about her said she was crazy because she invented her own language and all this and so forth. But I found in Hildegard a real dynamic Renaissance woman who was scientist and healer, mystic and painter and a great musician and a prophet. She was writing letters to the popes telling them they were surrounded by evil and all this and to get off their papal throne. And she was writing letters to abbots and archbishops saying they were drying up. And that's the only sin anyway is drying up, she said, so better do something. So uh, she was amazing. And so I got into her and kind of helped bring her forward. And then a lot of others got on board, of course. And so Hildegard is really present in our consciousness today. And then I went back to Aquinas, who might had years of study with us, a Dominican, because he was a Dominican. But they had never introduced us to the mystical side of Aquinas. And of course, I learned why when I got into Aquinas. They had never even bothered to translate his most mystical works. So I translated these and did a work on Aquinas's mysticism. So here were three heavyweights, Aquinas, Hildegard, and Eckhart, who were all in a lineage. Aquinas quotes Hildegard. Of course, Eckhart was very much a student of Aquinas because he came in the Dominicans right after Aquinas died. When I look back at my own life, things really blew open for me spiritually as a teenager. I remember when I was a ninth grader, a freshman, walking in my living room and someone was playing Beethoven's Seventh. And all I wanted to do was dance. My whole soul just wanted to dance. And it was a mystical moment. I, I've remembered it ever since. I remember reading Tolstoy's War and Peace between my junior and senior high school. And I told a friend, it blew my soul wide open, and I wanted to explore what happened to me. And, of course, it was a mystical experience, and I, I didn't have words for it then. But that's really had a lot to do with my going into the Dominican order a few years after high school because I wanted to explore spiritual experience. That, in a nutshell, is... Uh, is some of my personal journey. If you have enjoyed the conversations of Lama Somo and Matthew, please visit namshock.org forward slash podcast for additional information and resources. That's N-A-M-C-H-A-K. The full record of their discussions, The Lotus and the Rose, is available on Amazon. The book also provides streaming access to full videos of their conversations, totaling almost nine hours. For more information on Lama Somo and the learning programs of Namshak, please visit namshak.org. For more information on Matthew Fox and his teachings in creation spirituality, visit matthewfox.org. This podcast was produced by Byron McCoy of Audible Productions on behalf of Namshak Publishing. Music from this episode has been used with the permission of Nawang Xiong, Sounds True, and Anonymous 4 for Harmonia Mundi. For full-length recordings by Nawang Xiong, please visit SoundsTrue.com. Videos from which this audio was taken were directed by Katie Robin Garten with Sprout Films Incorporated. Full credits are available in the show notes of this episode.